Amen. Isn't that the truth? The answer is Christ. Thank you, Nikos, for your song. Let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. Thankful for the opportunity to be able to preach tonight the burden that the Lord's put on my heart. Genesis chapter 37, there in the beginning of your Bible. And once you've found that, if you would stand with me as we read a few verses here, and then I'll allow you to be seated as we jump in. And we're going to be a little bit all over the latter portion of Genesis this evening as we look at the life of Joseph. So Genesis chapter number 37, we'll start reading in verse Number three, the Bible says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was his son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. When his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaf stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said, unto, said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars have made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. Thank you. You may be seated. The book of Genesis, as my students in world history are learning, is the book of beginnings or the book of origins. And uh, really it chronicles for us and gives us a record of the creation, the fall of man, the worldwide flood, the dispersion of languages, the, uh, the, at, there at Babel, the call of Abraham and God's promise to start a nation, Israel. And you think about the book of Genesis and all that it includes, but really you'd be remiss if you failed to talk about the book of Genesis and mention the man Joseph. Joseph is a key figure in the book of Genesis. In fact, the story of Joseph, it spans 13 chapters, which accounts for about 25% of the book. In fact, when you look at the Bible, uh, there's twice as much in the Bible about Joseph as there is about Abraham. You know, that seems pretty significant to me. You know, you think about Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. Unquestionably, aside from Moses, he's probably the greatest character in the Bible. You think about the three major monotheistic religions in the world. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. All of them trace back to Abraham. He's a significant figure. I mean, Abraham, uh, we sing songs about him having many sons and many sons having father Abraham. He's got his whole song. In fact, I'll sing it for you tonight. No, I'm just kidding. We won't do that. But you know, he's kind of a big deal, right? Abraham, he's a, he's a big deal. But why do we find so much of Genesis talking about Joseph instead of talking about Abraham? I would have thought it'd be the other way around. But when you look at the book of Genesis and you look at the fact that so much is being devoted to developing the life of this one individual for the reader, uh, it means he's a pretty profound person. And I think the significance of Joseph can be found in the fact that Joseph typified Christ. That is, he was a picture 
of the coming Christ, the picture of the coming Messiah. And when you think about his life, really it parallels the life of Christ. Consider some of the similarities we see. Joseph, he was a shepherd. Jesus was the great shepherd. You think about Joseph, he was loved by his father. Jesus was beloved by the father as well. Joseph was hated by his brothers. Jesus was hated by his brothers. Joseph was conspired against. Jesus was also conspired against. Joseph was stripped of his coat. Jesus was stripped of his coat. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave in his day. Judah, Judah was the one who suggested the idea of selling Joseph into slavery. The Greek name for Judah is Judas, and Judas was the one who sold out Christ. Joseph's blood sprinkled coat, the, the blood of a goat is presented to the Father. Jesus is our scapegoat, and his blood was presented to our Father as a sin offering. Joseph was tempted and did not sin. Jesus was tempted and did not sin. Joseph was falsely accused. Jesus was falsely accused. Joseph attempted no defense. Jesus gave no defense at his trial. Joseph was 30 years old when he rose to the position that he did with Pharaoh and began his ministry there. Jesus was 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Joseph alone was uh, seen as the one dispersing bread to a perishing world. And Jesus is the one who disperses the bread of life to a perishing world. Joseph became a savior to the people of his day. Jesus is the savior to the people today. And so we see those are some pretty striking parallels when you look at the life of Joseph and considering the coming Messiah, the life of Christ. And throughout Joseph's life, you'll find a picture, a delineation, a story of the life of our Lord. As a picture of Christ, we find in Joseph really a great Old Testament example of what a Christ-like life looks like. We can see what, what that looks like there in the Old Testament. The Bible really records for us four monumental events that took place in Joseph's life. And as you study each one of these moments, you're going to find there's a unique similarity that accompanies all of them. As I was reading through these, I noticed that in each one of these moments, we see a change in Joseph's garments. We see a change in Joseph's clothes. And with each coat that he gets, we find a lesson that accompanies his response to the situation that he's finding himself in. And Joseph's response to each one of these situations, each one of these coats, really represent critical times in the life of a believer as we're in a pursuit of getting to know God and experiencing his blessings in our life. You know, as we study this co these coats, I think you'll see that each one of us finds ourselves wearing one or more of these coats at any time in our life. But you know, how we respond to the circumstances and how we respond to the situations in our life really determine to the, the extent to which God is able to use them in our life or whether or not we're going to allow them to go to waste. And so I want you to notice this evening four of Joseph's coats, or Joseph's, Joseph's four coats. If you're taking notes, I want you to notice, first of all, I wrote down the coat of sonship. The coat of sonship. And we read that here in Genesis chapter 37. I'm not going to uh, reread these verses. And as we look at these, I'm going to kind of assume that you have at least somewhat of a familiarity with the story of Joseph. Otherwise, we'd be here all night uh, trying to get through this. And so uh, just stay with me. But 
You think about the code of sonship that we read about here in chapter 37 in verse number three. It says, and he made him a coat of many colors. You know, the relationship that Jacob, Israel, had with his son Joseph was a unique relationship. I don't have time to go into all of Joseph's family drama, but his family was pretty messed up by all accounts. I mean, they, you think your family's weird? Look at Joseph's family. That'll, get, that'll encourage you. Um, there's a lot of drama by anyone's standards. They had their issues. Jacob had two wives. He had two concubines through which he had children. You remember how Jacob had, tr had been tricked by his father-in-law into marrying Leah when he thought he was marrying Rachel, the one that he loved. But though Jacob had 12 sons, Joseph in particular was one of the sons that he loved the most. It was his firstborn of Rachel, the one that he loved, the one that he cherished. And the Bible tells us that Jacob, Israel, he loved Joseph more than all his other children. Now, you can say what you want about parents having favorites, but if you're against it, it's probably because you weren't your parents' favorite. <laughs> but uh, I, my, my brother and my sisters, they affectionately call me the chosen one because they think I'm my parents' favorite, which I am. I don't blame them. I'd be jealous, too, if I was them. But we see here, uh, they, were, they were bitter. They were very bitter. They hated the fact that jo Jacob loved Joseph. And his love for Joseph was apparent to all of his brothers. In fact, the Bible tells us that because of his love for his son, he made him a coat of many colors. Now, we probably have an image that comes to our mind when we read that phrase. And maybe you think back to Sunday school days and you got your flannograph, uh, Joseph, his coat of many colors. That's what you picture. But when you look at the Hebrew text, we really find some interesting qualities about this coat. And uh, we look at that phrase, coat of many colors. In the Hebrew, it's really just made up of two words. Two words that make up that phrase that we translate into four different ones, coat of many colors. But it's kenetheneth and pasum. And that first word, kenetheneth, it denotes a coat, a robe, a tunic, if you will, that was worn during this time. And that second phrase there, pasim, it doesn't really speak to the color of the coat as much as it does to the length of the coat. So he's talking about this coat, and that word pasim, it speaks about its length. And a pasim would have been a tunic that would have reached to the palms and would have reached to the soles of the shoes. You say, well, that's not quite what I thought about necessarily. But, you know, in its most literal translation, you could say that here that Jacob made for Joseph a garment that reached to the ankles and to his wrist. You say, well, why is that significant? Why did his brothers get so jealous? Why did they get so bitter about that? Well, the coat that Joseph was given would have been a beautiful robe. It would have been a flowing coat that would have reached down to the ankles, would have reached down to his wrist. It would have had full sleeves. It would have been embroidered and colorful. And it was a piece of raiment, uh, a piece of clothing that was worn by noblemen's sons. It would have been worn by king's sons. It would have been worn by the rich, the wealthy, the affluent. It was worn by those who didn't have to labor, those who didn't have to Toil, those who didn't have to work out in the fields, those who had this type of coat, they would walk through the streets with their beautiful coat. Uh, they were men of leadership, men of wealth. They were worn by people who didn't have to work with their hands. By contrast, we see the other type of garments that would have been worn by those who were laboring. They would have been shorter. 
They would have been about knee length. They would have been either sleeveless or sleeves down to the elbow so that they could move freely as they worked and carried sheep or worked out in the fields or waded through the water. Their garments would have been dull in color as they, uh, because wearing that type of a robe wouldn't have been practical as you're out in the fields and you're doing all that other, other work. And so a laboring man, he was dressed in a short garment. He'd wade out in the rivers, he'd work in the fields, he'd climb mountains, he'd carry sheep, he'd, uh, sheep, he'd fight off predators. And so that beautiful flowing coat, that was for the person who didn't work. That was for the person who didn't have to labor. And so when you think about it in that context, it makes a little bit more sense why his brothers were so jealous. They see Jake, uh, Joseph coming and here he's coming in his nice coat that daddy gave him. And they're thinking, how come he don't have to work? How come we're out here working in the heat? How come we're out here toiling in the fields? And here comes daddy's favor. He doesn't have to work. He gets to, to walk around like a king while we're out here laboring. And we're out here sweating. And then to top it all off, Joseph's the one who's going back and telling their dad all the things they're not doing. And so they hated him. Not only that, his brothers were fearful that Joseph would be given the birthright, even though he wasn't technically the oldest. He was the firstborn of Rachel, and they didn't want him to have the inheritance that was, would have been given to the firstborn. And so the significance of the coat really is that it was a coat that denoted Joseph's sonship. It denoted his sonship. It was given to him by his father. It showed the love that his father had for him. You could say it this way, his coat set him apart. It set him apart. And so with the presentation of this coat, we read about something else that takes place. In verse number five is that Joseph dreamed a dream. And so along with the presentation of this coat from his father, he dreams a dream. And in this dream, God reveals to him this position of prominence that he's going to one day have over his family, which only fuels his brother's hatred. And so the coat of, so of sonship is significant in Joseph's life because in it, we find Joseph's identity. We find his identity. Along with that coat, we see that Joseph's dream, it solidified the purpose and the plan that God had for him. See, there was no doubt that he was loved by his father. Joseph's knew that, Joseph knew that his father's love was not wavering. Everyone else who saw Joseph knew that Israel loved him. And then his purpose, we're not going to develop it here. I've already preached it before, but it was what sustained him throughout his whole life. As he went through trial after trial and event and hardship that came into his life, he never lost sight of the dream that God had given to him. Even when his brethren stripped him of his coat, he never lost sight of his identity and the dream that God had gave, given him. Even when he's eventually reunited with his brothers and he calls for his father, there's no doubt in Joseph's mind that his father still loves him. His father still cares for him. And I believe when we see this code of sonship for the believer, it's really a picture or reminder, if you will, of our salvation, of who we are in Christ. It's a reminder of our birthright that through salvation in Christ, we entered into a relationship with the father. And as his child, we experience his unwavering, unconditional love in our life. In Christ, we find our identity. We find our purpose. We find our security. It's our identity in Christ that is what sustains us through all of the trials, through all of the difficulties that we experience in our life. You know, many believers, they get discouraged. They get defeated because they lose sight of their identity. 
They forget who they are in Christ. They, they, they look for validation in their work. They look for validation in their social status. They look for validation in financial security and, and the approval of others. But you know, all those things, they come and go. They waver. And so when the job is gone, gone, when the bills aren't paid, when they don't get that promotion, when they're not recognized, they become discouraged. They've lost sight of their identity. But when your identity is found in Christ, he's our sure foundation. He's our rock. We talked about that in Sunday school a few weeks ago. In our Christ Walk journal, we have the believer's resume, and it reminds us of who we are in Christ. We have Christ's power and authority. We're holy. We're blameless. We're beyond reproach. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. We've been made complete. We've del we're delivered from the domain of darkness and have been transferred to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're God's temple. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. We're redeemed by by the precious blood of Jesus. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We're more than conquerors. Death has no right to me. Sin has no right to me. Satan has no right to me. Victory is secure. Listen, when you look for your validation, your identity and other things, you're going to be disappointed. But when your identity is found in Christ and you know that you're his child, you don't have to go looking for other things. And so what are you looking to for validation? Where are you looking to for purpose? Where are you looking to for security? Joseph's coat of sonship, it reminds us to find our identity in our heavenly father who loves and cares for us unconditionally. And so we see this coat of sonship. But I want you to notice, secondly, the second coat we see in his life, and that is the coat of steadfastness. Take your Bibles and turn over a few pages to Genesis chapter 39. You want to read any, any more about how messed up Joseph's family is? Read chapter 38. Genesis chapter 39. Look in verse number 7. You're familiar with this with story probably. It says, And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master would not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not unto her to lie with her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house uh, there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. We're familiar with the story of Joseph, but really it picks up for us here. We find him in Egypt. He've, he's been purchased off of the slave market there by Potiphar. And I think about the journey that Joseph took. And I imagine it was a difficult journey. I imagine it was a hard journey. He didn't have much. Everything that he had had been taken from him. And I imagine any one of us would have been tempted to get bitter. We would have been tempted to be upset. Would have been tempted to get angry at those perhaps who put us into that position. But when we read about the life of Joseph, we would, we would have, it would have been totally understandable if we read Joseph wept, Joseph was discouraged, Joseph was doubting the plan that God had for him. But the Bible doesn't record any of that. In fact, we read of Joseph prospering. 
In verse 2, it says, and the Lord was with Joseph and he was a prosperous man. Verse 3, it says, the Lord was with him. Again, it says, the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Verse 4, Joseph found grace in his sight. Verse 5, and it came to pass from that time that he had made him overseer of the house. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake and the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had done in the house and in the field. Verse 6, and Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. Things seem to be turning around for Joseph. Things are going well. He's becoming a favorite again. And God is blessing him. God is demonstrating his faithfulness. But then you know what? Something happens. Things take a turn. Potiphar's wife casts her eyes upon Joseph and tries to seduce him. And Joseph refuses and he flees the scene, leaving his coat behind. Though he was in a foreign land, though he's away from all, all accountability that would have known him, he remained faithful to God. Amen. And we read that familiar verse, that famous verse in verse 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph wasn't going to sell his dream and God's blessing for a cheap one-night stand with Potiphar's wife. He wasn't going to give that up. And while wearing this coat, he had great position of prominence and authority. He had, had everything committed to his trust Fleeing Potiphar's wife and leaving his coat behind meant that he would risk leaving behind the prosperity and comfort that he had come to enjoy. Joseph made the decision to leave his garment and to remain steadfast in his faithfulness to God, even in the greatest moment of temptation. God had been good to him. God had preserved him. God had sustained him. God had blessed him. God was faithful to Joseph and there was no way that he was going to turn his back on God now. Joseph remembered his dream. He knew that God wasn't through with him and that it was too soon to quit living for him. And so this code of steadfastness, it reminds us to remain faithful to God even in our greatest moments of adversity. It reminds us to rest in the faithfulness of God. I might not know your story. I might not know all that you've experienced. I may not know all the trials you've faced. I may not know all the, experience, all the adversity that's come your way. But I know enough about God to say that if you're one of his, he's been faithful in your life. God's been faithful for you. We sang about it this morning during our worship time. Oh, worship the king, frail children of dust and feeble is frail. In thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Name one time God's ever let you down. Name one time God's not kept his word. He's kept his promise. He's met your needs. He's provided the grace that you've needed. He's given you the strength to overcome. And if God's been faithful in your life, why in the world would you turn your back on him? Why would you go back? Pastor reminded us this morning, the folly of going backwards, no turning back. And so rather than turning back and running, what we ought to be doing in those times of adversity, in those times of difficulty, we ought to be resting in the faithfulness of God. You think about when temptation comes, rest in the faithfulness of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. When you're questioning God's love for you, rest in his faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 it is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. When you're growing weary in service, 
Rest in the faithfulness of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. When you feel like everything around you is crashing, rest in the faithfulness of God. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and keep you from evil. When you find yourself questioning God's ability, rest in the faithfulness of God. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that hath promised. And so rather than running, we need to be resting in God's faithfulness. There's no need to doubt God now. And Joseph's code of steadfastness reminds us of the fact that it's always too soon to quit on God. It's always too soon to turn back. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so we see the code of sonship. We see the code of steadfastness. But notice thirdly, the third code we find in his life, and that is the code of suffering. The code of suffering. Turn over to chapter 41 and notice in verse number one, it says, And it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed. We can skip forward a little bit. Verse number nine he tell, after he tells the dream, then spake the chief butler unto Pharaoh, saying, I do remember my faults this day. Pharaoh was wroth with his servants and put me in, in ward in the captain of the guard's house, both me and the chief baker. And we dreamed a dream in one night, and he, I and he, we dreamed each man according to the interpretation of his dream. And there was there with us a young man, an Hebrew servant, to the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted to us our dreams." And each man, according to his dream, he did interpret. And it came to pass, as he interpreted to us, so it was me he restored unto mine office, and him he hanged. Verse 14, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon, and he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. We fast forward again in Joseph's life and we read about uh, the fact that while he was in prison, we know the story, he meets a baker and he meets a butler. And these men, they both have dreams and Joseph interprets their dreams and he makes uh, the, the butler who was going to be the one who wasn't hanged, so he's thinking here, uh, promise that when he gets back in his office to talk to Pharaoh and tell of Joseph's innocence and wouldn't you know it, the butler forgets. He forgets. And I can imagine Joseph here, he's in prison and he's waiting for word to come that he's been released. I can see Joseph there telling the guard, hey, just you wait and see. We got this all figured out. The butler, he's going to go. He's going to tell Pharaoh what happened. Things are going to be cleared up. They're going to realize it's all just one big misunderstanding. I'm going to be out of here before you even know it. But then a day passes and a week passes and a month passes and a year passes. And, and I can imagine if it was me, that hope would have quickly began to wane. You know, verse one tells us that two years had passed. And I don't know about you, but about year one, my thoughts would have been shifting from, I just know he's going to tell Pharaoh to, that good for nothing, Butler. I'll tell you what. But you know, all this time that Joseph's in prison, we're given every indication that he waited patiently on the Lord. The Bible tells us in Genesis 39 and verse 21 and 23 through 23, but the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. And the, the keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Joseph wasn't plotting an escape. 
He wasn't stashing away spoons from the cafeteria to try to dig a tunnel out. He wasn't going on a hunger strike to try to get the warden's attention. He's not writing letters to Potiphar trying to clear things up so he can get out early for good behavior. We don't hear any complaining. He's not saying, Lord, this isn't what you promised. Don't you know I'm here on false charges? What do we find Joseph doing? He's patiently waiting on the Lord. He's resting in the Lord. He's not in a, in a hurry to escape. Why? Because he knew that God was aware of his situation. It was no surprise to God that Joseph found himself in the prison. Joseph had learned in his life that God is in control of everything that takes place in his life. And can I remind you of the fact that there's nothing that happens in your life that takes God by surprise? God's not shocked by what happens in your life. Matthew 10, verse 29 and 30, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father? He knows. Isaiah 40, verse 28, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. Isaiah 64, and verse 10, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God's not taken by surprise when it comes to the unexpected things to us. God knows all about it. He knows the end from the beginning, it says. And God uses the difficulties that come into our life to shape us into who he wants us to be. And Joseph, he's there in prison and he's waiting patiently for two years to be called out of the prison. And the day finally comes when he could change out of those clothes of suffering, those clothes of waiting. You know, Antonio Stradivarius was an Italian violin maker who lived from 1644 to 1737. And his violins are some of the most prized violins that were ever made because of the rich resonating sound that they produce. The unique sound of a Stradivarius violin can't be duplicated. And surprisingly, these instruments weren't made from some treasured pieces of wood, but instead they were carved from discarded lumber and wood that would wash up on the shore. See, Stradivarius was very poor and couldn't afford fine materials like his contemporaries could. And so he would go down to the harbor near his house and he would find some wood that was adrift there. And he'd take those waterlogged pieces of wood back to his home, back to his shop, and he'd wash them up. He'd clean those pieces of trash lumber and he would create these instruments of rare beauty. And so from wood that nobody wanted, Stradivarius produced violins that everyone wanted. And when he was asked why he used only wood that, uh, that was taken there from the harbor that had weathered, the biggest uh, had weathered, he said that weathered beaten, beaten wood makes the sweetest music. And science has actually confirmed that that's the case. The wood that was adrift, there would be microorganisms that would come and hollow out the cells of that wood. And that's why it's, it resonates the way that it does. But you know, it's easy to become frustrated with the sufferings that we experience. And instead of resisting our trials, God wants us to rest in him. He wants us to allow him to use those sufferings and to make us into the Christians that he wants us to be and to glorify himself throughout that whole process. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 and 13, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. 
Isaiah 41, verse 10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. God wants us to allow him to use these sufferings, use these trials in our life to make us into his image. You know, we live in a fast-paced society, full of deadlines. We want everything done now. We want everything done yesterday, really. But we're constantly rushing from one thing to the next. I mean, you think about how streamlined our society has, has become. We have this self-destructive addiction to fast living. We lust after speed. We have to have things done faster. We're constantly looking for ways to get things done quicker, right? Our orders from Amazon, they come faster. We eat fast food. Microchips and our phones and our computers are getting faster and faster. We want to make money faster. We want to retire faster. We want to complete our degree faster. We want to get projects done faster. And we live our life in a rush. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get to the end of my day and I knew I did a lot, but it's like a blur when I think back on it. Y'all ever been there like that? Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Uh, but I mean, we want to do everything faster. We want to travel faster. We want to connect with people faster. I mean, we can reach just about anybody in the world by just picking up a phone and calling them. And in a few minutes, we can be connected to them. In fact, we get mad if they don't answer the first time. Right? We want that order that we placed 30 seconds ago to be ready by the time we get to the second window. We're like, what in the world's happened? This place is going downhill, Chick-fil-A. Uh, but, you know, we want everything faster. I mean, you realize we don't even have time to toast a Pop-Tart anymore. There are microwave instructions for Pop-Tarts. Put in the microwave on high for three seconds. Like, how long does it actually take to toast a Pop-Tart? Like 30 seconds, but we don't have time for that. We got to get it done in three. But we're living life so fast. But you know, I thought about that, and that is, you know, that is that oftentimes God allows suffering to come into our life to slow us down and to get our focus back on Him. He allows suffering to come and, and, and to put us where we need to be to where we can focus our attention back on Him. Psalm 27, verse 14 wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 37, 7, rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Psalm 62, verse 5, my soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. Psalm 130, verse 6, my soul waiteth for the Lord. More than they that watch for the morning, I say more than they that watch for the morning. Isaiah 40, verse 31, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see, we want to go, go, go. But oftentimes God is saying, wait. Be still. And Joseph patiently endured, keeping his eyes on the Lord in his suffering. And this code of suffering, it reminds us of the fact that God uses our suffering to point us to himself. It reminds us to wait on God and to trust in his timing. And so we see the code of sonship, the code of steadfastness, the code of suffering. And then notice lastly here, we see his code of success. His code of success. Look there in chapter 41. Look down at verse uh, 37. It says, And the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh, in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. 
And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. We see here this last coat, and we're familiar with the story that once Pharaoh, uh, once before Pharaoh, Joseph gives the interpretation of his dream and Pharaoh recognizes the divine wisdom that God has given to Joseph and he appoints him as second in command. And in doing so, we see Joseph's last code and that's his code of success. See, everything in Joseph's life had been working toward this moment. God had been weaving together this tapestry of unlikely events to bring Joseph into a position of prominence where he'd be able to fulfill the dream that God had given to him 13 years earlier. You know, I'm sure had you asked Joseph early on how this dream was going to be fulfilled, he probably could have come up with all kinds of situations how it could have happened, much like we do. All these speculations of how things would take place and how it would come to, come to pass. And I highly doubt that Joseph foresaw being thrown into a pit and sold into slavery by his brothers. I highly doubt that uh, he could have con uh, would, would have thought about all that took place. I'm sure he could have conceived a plan that didn't involve false allegations. I'm sure he could have probably come up with a plan that it didn't include him making a pit stop in prison before he got to the palace. But, you know, God in his sovereignty allowed those things and worked them together for good in Joseph's life. And really not just for Joseph's good, but for Israel's good. It, 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 it was a provision for, for his whole nation. Even at the point, even at this point in Joseph's life, I'm not really sure that he fully understood all that God had done. I mean, he hadn't met his family again. He wasn't reunited with his brothers. He just knew, here I am again, and I'm in a position of prominence. But when we look at the life of Joseph and the events we're reminded of the fact that God is working all things together for, for his good and for his glory. We're familiar with Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And really, we see the same principle and the same truth echoed in Joseph's life. Think about later on at the close of Joseph's story. We read in Genesis 50 and verse 20. But as for you, you thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. You see, Joseph's life is a reminder that though we may not understand what God is doing in the moment and why, he, while he, why he's allowing these things to transpire in our life, we can trust that God is using them to prepare us for the greater work that he has before us. You know, five times in Genesis 39, the Bible says the Lord was with Joseph. But, you know, that didn't mean he was exempt from betrayal by his brothers. That didn't mean that, uh, he, that repeated temptation wouldn't come his way. That didn't mean that he wouldn't face slander and false imprisonment. That didn't mean that he, he would face disappointment at the hands of the butler that he befriended in prison. God allowed those things into Joseph's life and God used them to bring him to a place where in due time, Joseph would be able to minister and to provide for his family. 1 Peter 5, verse 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And looking back on his life, Joseph realized all of these experiences, they were just training for reigning. He was training for the day that God would put him in that position. There's a story told about a king in Africa who had a faithful uh, servant who was always had a positive attitude about everything that happened in life. And whether it was good or whether it was bad, he would always remark, this is good. And one day 
the king and his servant, they were out on a hunting expedition and the servant was loading the guns and he would load the gun, prepare it for the king, then hand it to the king and he would fire at the animals. Well, apparently the servant had done something wrong because when the king took the gun from the servant, he fired it and his thumb was blown off. Well, examining the situation, the servant remarked as usual, this is good. Well, the king was angry and he replied, no, this is not good. And he proceeded to send this friend to jail, this servant to jail. Well, about three years later, the king was once again hunting, but he was hunting in an area that he was unaware there were cannibals around him. And the cannibals captured him and took him to their village and they tied his hands, they stacked some wood around him, and they set up a stake and they bound him to the stake. As they came near to set the fire to the wood, they noticed the king was missing a thumb. Well, the cannibals were very superstitious and they never ate anyone who was less than whole. And so they untied the king and they sent him on his way. And as he was returning home, the king was thinking back on the situation. He was reminded on the event where he lost his thumb and he felt just great remorse for the fact that he sent this servant to jail. And so he went immediately to the jail to speak to him. And he said to the servant, you're right. It was good that my thumb was blown off. And he proceeded to tell the servant all that had just happened. He said, I'm so very sorry for sending you to jail for so long. It was bad for me to do this. Well, the servant said, no, this is good. The king said, what do you mean this is good? How could it be good that I sent you to jail for three years? He says, because if I hadn't been in jail, I'd have been with you. And I have two thumbs. This is good. <laughs> You know, we shouldn't be discouraged when things are happening the way that we didn't think that, that aren't happening the way that we thought that they should. You know, our understanding, our vantage point is so finite, it's so limited. Why don't instead we trust the one who knows the beginning from the end? Let's trust the one whose ways are past finding out. Let's trust the one who is good, who is trustworthy. Isaiah 55 and verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And so we see Joseph's code of success. It reminds us of the truth that God is working all things together for good. You know, I don't know where you might be this evening. I don't know which coat you might find yourself wearing. Maybe you're wearing that coat of suffering. You're in a position of, of waiting. You're in a waiting pattern. You're in a place where you're not sure what's next. Listen, don't get discouraged. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Don't try to manipulate. Don't despise the waiting. Trust God's timing. Maybe you're wearing that coat of steadfastness. You're doing battle. Maybe it's a temptation that you can't seem to get victory over. Maybe it's a situation that just keeps presenting itself. Maybe you're facing something unexpected that just came out of nowhere and you're tempted to throw in the towel. You've been tempted to just walk away from it entirely. Can I challenge you? That's always too soon to quit on God. Doing battle in your own strength. Don't do battle in your own strength. Rest in his faithfulness. Maybe you're wearing that coat of success. Maybe you just came through some storm. Maybe you're seeing victories and answers to prayers that you've been praying for a long time. God is blessing. God is working. Hey, praise the Lord, but don't lose sight of the fact that, uh, don't lose sight of where God brought you from and the fact that he's put you in that position so that you can minister to other people. Amen. You know, I hope at the very least you're wearing that coat of sonship. You know, I trust there's been a day in your life when you entered into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if so, Allow your identity to be found in Christ. 
Find your identity in him. Find your, your security in him. Find your, your purpose in him. He's the foundation which guides us as we navigate the trials and difficulties that are inevitably going to come our way. Each one of us, like I said in the beginning, will find ourselves wearing one or more of these coats at any given time in our life. And how we respond is really going to determine the extent of God's ability to use them in our life. And so will we use them? Will we allow God to use them? Or are we going to choose to waste them? May we allow God to use them to accomplish his work in our life. Let's all stand together.